0: Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Bianca. And I'm Gianna. Hello, hello, indeed. I need to thank all of the Art Pop Tarts who let us have a little break last week. It was much needed. What a week it has been. Gianna, how are you feeling and how was your past week? (laughs) It was good. Much
1: needed break, indeed. Mm -hmm. Thank you for everyone uh, for just Mm -hmm. bearing with us. Yeah, so all good things. I installed my exhibition, uh, so that was really exciting. Honestly, Bianca, it looks really good. Like, you would really like it.
0: No, I know. I'm so excited to see it. Yeah, it's really cool because
1: this is the first time I've displayed my prints with my sculptures, actually.
0: So, yeah. And you have an artist talk on November... 19th so can the art pop tarts attend it wouldn't be an artist talk without of course the tartlets yes so there's a virtual
1: artist talk it's thursday the 19th at 7 p.m and that can be found at modella art gallery's facebook page so yeah i would love for you all to tune in 7 p.m central time yes please tell me about boston oh my gosh I was feeling like honestly so lonely like being here watching all the excitement where you
0: were not fair. It was great. It was fantastic. And of course on Saturday we got some very exciting news. Yes. And I don't know, it was very it was very overwhelming. I I felt so honored honestly to be in the presence of just pure joy and I know that everyone kind of keeps using that phrase but I don't know of another way to describe what I felt and what I saw other than happiness and joy in the streets. I also went to MFA Boston and the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum and Gwen asked on Instagram, she said, I would love to know how you found your experience at MFA. I've held off going since the reopening as ticket prices are steep without the student discount, and I was weary of the limited exhibit spaces open. So, yeah, I agree, Gwen. I was actually kind of frustrated with MFA's purchasing process because The person I went with is a student, and I'm also an AAM member. So an AAM card, I'm a member of the American Alliance of Museums, and a lot of times you get free entrance with your AAM membership. So to a certain extent, I am happy to support museums during this time. I know it's really hard, but it's also really hard for everyone, especially students and it was it was okay so gwen i I totally understand but i have never been to mfa boston so for me the so i'll say a lot of the the museum's permanent collection was closed because of covid and they're limiting the amount of spaces that the public can enter during this time but it was kind of nice just for our schedule to feel like I didn't necessarily have to rush through the museum because I was only given access to a certain point. We also saw the Basquiat exhibition, and that was really fantastic. I really, really enjoyed that. I'll say it was, I felt very safe. The number of people in the museum was so, so small that, you know, there was never a point where I felt uncomfortable like there were too many people like I was too close to people not at all I mean most of the time I think we were the only two people in a gallery and you know maybe we would kind of cross paths at a distance with people in the same uh you know wing of the museum but it it felt really nice to be back in a big artistic environment I really really enjoyed it and um i think sometimes it's hard when you have one of these major museums and you know you get museum fatigue it's very overwhelming to stop and take in all of the different objects that you're seeing and really learn about what is being presented and so it was nice to kind of almost be forced to to maybe stop and and see objects that you might not normally want to visit so (laughs) wow i'm so happy for you um (laughs) Hey, I bought you a present.
1: Ooh, now I am really happy for you. What'd you get me? I'll
0: send it to you, but I think you'll really like it. Okay, but like, just tell me what it is. No,
1: I'm not gonna. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. All right, Bianca. So what do we have for some
0: this week? Okay, my Precious little tartlets this is a very interesting story and i'm really curious to see gianna what you and the listeners think about this because it's causing a lot of division amongst major museums this past september four major museums the national art gallery in washington the museum of fine arts houston tate modern in london and finally mfa boston announced that they were postponing a retrospective on the artist Philip Gustin that was originally scheduled to open in June of 2021, and this will be postponed until 2024, stating that, quote, postponing the exhibition until a time at which we think that the powerful message of social and racial justice that is at the center of Philip Gustin's work can be more clearly interpreted, Unquote. The decision came after museums organizing the exhibition decided that Guston's consistent imagery of cartoonish, haggard, white-hooded Ku Klux Klansmen needed to be better contextualized for the current political moment. I'll note that these images would also be very prevalent throughout the exhibitions in multiple works. Guston's daughter Musa Mayer who wrote a memoir on her father said she was saddened by the decision and said that his work quote dared to hold up a mirror to white America then Darby English a professor of art history at the University of Chicago and a former adjunct curator at MoMA called the decision cowardly and an insult to art and the public alike so that was back in September Now we're hearing that the show will open at MFA Boston in 2022 and will travel throughout 2023. Matthew Teitelbaum, the director of MFA Boston, wrote that we need to, quote, thoughtfully reconsider how the work could be presented when the context in which we will present the work has changed since we first envisioned the exhibition. It's important to say that while Gustin explored clan violence against Black people in his work, while, you know, this would inevitably lead us to consider the Black Lives Matter movement in relation to these images that would be presented, but Gustin's clan imagery also evokes considerations of anti-Semitism and Jewishness in addition to the horrors of violence against Black people. Gustin offered explanations of his Klan figures the little bastards, he called them, he said, I almost tried to imagine that I was living with the Klan, what it would be like to be evil. The National Gallery's director has talked about today's America, that this country is not just the one in which George Floyd can be brutally murdered, but one also in which the U.S. president, soon to be ex-president, sees, quote, very fine people. Among those white supremacists who marched in Charlottesville chanting, Jews will not replace us. So, in a recent open letter to the Brooklyn Rail, dozens of artists and writers argued that Philip Gustin now, the title of the exhibition... Should be reinstated, and that museum staff should prepare themselves to engage with the public and do the necessary work to present this art in all its depth and complexity. So, a quote from an article says The more courageous response from museums would not be to recurate the show in the coming years, but to reinterpret it for now. So I personally am not a fan of Gustin. His images overall have never really been visually appealing to me. Again, this is not to say that I think his work and his messages should be overlooked in any way, but I think this is a really good example of how museums need to be putting in the work to be actively anti-racist and to meet the needs of its community so Gianna I'm just really curious what your thoughts are I wasn't
1: familiar with Gustin's work prior to this debate but in looking into it after I will say the complexities of the images are intriguing when considering the cartoon-like fashion of the clan figures in that regard the chosen visual expression of Gustin's paintings conceptually works really well knowing the history and the racist rhetoric that comics or cartoons have so using a type of visual expression to now dismantle white supremacy is very quite interesting to me this is yet again another great example as you said bianca to show how current events and important events that we need to support such as the black lives matter movement have had a direct impact on the art world But it is yet, again, disappointing that it takes a global movement to make curators re-examine their own work when they should have been thinking critically in the beginning. And with any show, as time progresses, the way we read the work changes. And this is something that we talk about all the time on the podcast. Mm -hmm. This is not new. (laughs) The majority Mm -hmm. of this work has been created, what, in the 1960s? It's been a hot minute. (laughs) And I agree, Bianca why not reinterpret the work now and work to contextualize it in a manner that's more appropriate, truthful, and reflective of the time it was created in and also the time in which it is being exhibited and examined.
0: Yeah, Gianna, I think this is a super interesting point that the way we perceive art is always going to change throughout time. And I think, yes, museums need to do a good job of meeting the moment that we're in, but it's not like America is free of racism and especially under the, you know, influence of the past four years. It's not like a racist America should be a surprise to right. any of this. Right. Um, so I'm very interested to see or I, I wish I could know what those types of changes are would be within the curatorial process and how that reevaluation process is going to work I do think it's so you know it is so timely and and people really want to be engaged in this type of conversation and I think art is a great way to do that so in that sense I, I guess I am a little disappointed that it would be pushed back a year but Yeah, if anyone, if anyone has any other points, definitely let us know, because I, it's, of course, it's, (laughs) it's very complicated, and I think Mm -hmm. the curatorial process is always very, very lengthy also, so there are so many things, you know, taking place within the community, but also behind the scenes, so I I don't know, it's just... It's you know, wild.
1: And at the same time, obviously, I'm happy they're not just going to throw up the work now with no thought that they are going to take the time to recontextualize it. And But what was it going to be before? No, exactly. I'm like, how could it have been like that bad? Like, let us not forget. Yes, the Black Lives Matter movement is is uh, a moment that we need to meet now. But they are calling attention but to, again, racist. But it's not again, a new racist, movement. again, calling attention to racist America. Like, this is not new information. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. Yeah. All right, so there have been a few episodes where I've been able to talk about my work. And in today's episode of Art Pop Talk, we are going to jump back into Bianca's research. She was actually able to see one of the pieces discussed in her thesis at MFA Boston. So let's dive into some ornamental theory, shall we? (laughs) If you haven't listened to our second episode of Art Pop Talk yet, you might go back and visit it because that's where Bianca and I talk about the dinner party created by Judy Chicago and open up about Bianca's research a bit more.
0: Yeah, I went back and I, I listened to our second episode and it was so funny to hear our second recording and think about how, Gianna, you said you were still in school. It was your finals week. And oh, God. <laughs> and how much the pod has changed in just like 30 weeks so if you listen back you'll get a really good taste of (laughs) apt beginnings (laughs) apt
1: genesis era why did i think it would be a good idea to start a podcast as i was graduating (laughs) at the same time that timing i think it's brilliant
0: brilliant 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 i tell you (laughs) Yeah, but I was able to visit a work in Boston, which kind of sparked this reinterest in this idea of ornament. So I'm pumped to revisit this topic today.
1: Yay! Me too. So we have discussed the ornament a bit, and at least using the terms in relation to my own work. So if you've kept up with us, I believe this term should be at least somewhat familiar. But Bianca, Mm -hmm. take us through what ornamental theory is and how it is utilized historically and how it functions in feminist works.
0: Sure. So I think at a basic level, we all understand what ornamental and decorative mean as something that exists within our aesthetics. In architecture and decorative art, ornament is this, this decoration used to embellish parts of buildings or other objects, but it can also be applied to things such as the body. For example, adornment with jewelry and tattoos that all falls within the ornamental. But it wasn't until I took this ornamental theory class taught by the incredible Dr. Irene Backus- honestly the star of art history.
1: Oh my gosh, no I
0: can't. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god,
1: Irene, I love you so much. I miss you.
0: So I took this class in grad school and that's when the decorative arts were really academically placed within the art historical field for me. And when you go to a big museum, you know, there's always that floor, that wing that's reserved for the decorative arts and we see all this furniture and stained glass and dinnerware and oftentimes you know works from the home objects that feel very personal very domestic and i you know i don't want to speak for everyone but those wings always feel like a dead space within the museum you know what i'm talking about it is like dead in there
1: and it's always
0: like that room it's like always you... like darkly lit too right so yes. like you're, you no, don't it's know like, if you're supposed to go
1: in it's there. like scary and you're
0: like is this like a archive room or am i supposed to be in here yeah <laughs> So it's not really, you know, a big tourist wing for general museums. And, you know, I've definitely been one of those people where I feel like if I'm visiting, I'm like, all right, I'm just going to breeze through this and skip right through this decorative arts wing and, you know. (laughs) And when it was announced that this class would be one of the courses required for our graduate program, I think all of my colleagues and myself, you know, groaned about this boring topic and how it wouldn't be useful for any of us. And I honestly, I feel so terrible about that now I probably say this about every class but it was just the best <laughs> and it not only opened my eyes to this very important sector of art history and the art historical theories and writings and like this other structure that I didn't really know existed but it informed so much of the way that I perceive feminist art history and even our overall spaces in general that we have to navigate on a daily basis how the ornamental governs gender politics and of course these teachings opened up a whole section for me of my thesis so to once again offer a brief synopsis on an entire genre of art history some major developments in this theory are put forth by alwa regal in his stillfragen or problems of style foundations for a history of ornament still still frogging (laughs) wherein he argues that it was possible to write a continuous history of ornament and this is important because it directly opposes these technical materialists which perceived all art forms were always the direct products of materials and techniques and that ornamental motifs originated spontaneously throughout the world at a number of different locations. But Regal is separating the ornamental from the overall fine arts object. Then Gottfried Semper was an architect and an art critic who took issue with this materialist view as well, in which structure and material conditions are the sole governors for architectural forms. And you may also know Adolf Luce, the Austrian architect against tattoos, who believed that ornament and decoration was a waste of time, labor, money, and materials, and connected this to social and economic structures. You know, I've got to say, I've never been a Lucian stan, but he's making more and more sense to me, <laughs> even though he's he's definitely super harsh on some things. But whatever. When so... are we ever not harsh?
1: <laughs> like, that's all we anything. do here. <laughs>
0: you know what? I guess that's just art history in a nutshell. We're just bitching about other people's shit that we didn't even make. So whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So all of this back history that we went over in the class led to these more nuanced conversations about ornament and gender and how the decorative arts become this form associated with the domestic, with the feminine, and with women artists like fiber arts, pottery, textiles, jewelry, etc., And it's that gendered connection between ornament and the dinner party that I explore in my thesis.
1: Wow. Great little synopsis there. Thank Um, you. So in, in chapter two, you state, quote, Chicago's dinner meal interprets that consumption as something that hides the achievements of women, a metaphorical swallowing of women's history. Chicago's idea for her project would exemplify the point that while women are and were making significant contributions to history, their stories have continually been dismissed, End quote. Wow, I'm like quoting you. How do you feel? Honestly, I feel like super cool Not going <laughs> <laughs> So in taking what you just talked about in regards to the ornament, how does the complexity of women's history and the representation of women in history and women's art, Correlate to the ornament. Now that we know that this gendering of objects does exist,
0: this is such a great question. I'm I'm also gonna do some quoting of myself here throughout this episode. So we're getting real fancy. <laughs> I love that I, you write AO right here.
1: <laughs> hey A-O. AO, that's
0: me. <laughs> <laughs> this is me. You like. So I'm going to read you this section from my chapter, (laughs) which exemplifies the opening of my analysis on the gender party and sets up the framework for how I see the correlations between gender, women's art, and the history of ornament. In his 1918 book, Foundations of Modern Art, French painter Amide Ozenfant says in his section on cubism, quote, there is a hierarchy in the arts, decorative at the bottom, and the human form at the top, because we are men. It's a real quote. <laughs> well, this quote from
1: Ozenfant.
0: This is why Zibitz, we hate cubism, you know,
1: <laughs> just to put things in perspective. This is
0: why but we hate cubesum. cubism. <laughs> <laughs> so clearly, this is like not the best statement in the world, but it also illustrates two key notions that are useful in the analysis of the dinner party so first it exposes a distorted value system within traditional western art in which the decorative and the figural are positioned to compete against one another this is why you skip the decorative wing and you go to the naked ladies in your art museum second this quote highlights the problematic gendering of the decorative arts as feminine and the figural arts as masculine In his book, The Invention of Art, A Cultural History, Larry Shiner argues that beginning in the 18th century, the concept of art was split between the fine arts and the crafts or popular arts. He suggests that, quote, while the fine arts were a matter of inspiration and genius intended for refined pleasure, the popular arts were designed for mere use or entertainment. In a 1978 publication from the feminist art historical journal Heresies, a feminist publication on art and politics, American artist Valerie Jadon and Joyce Kozloff argue that, quote, since the art experts consider the high arts of Western men superior to all other forms, those arts done by non-Western people, low-class people, and women are categorized as minor arts, primitive arts, low arts, etc. The myth that high art is for a select few perpetuates the hierarchy in the arts and among people as well. So what Shiner and Kozloff and Jaden essentially claim in these two separate instances is that social structures of race, class, and gender informed this divide within the arts in a battle of power relations. The decorative arts were categorized as minor, low, or craft because the makers, users, and viewers of objects that are assigned to that category. It is therefore those two precedents, the the hierarchy of the decorative versus the figural, and the problematic categorization of gendering those art forms that merge in Judy Chicago's The Dinner Party. So this coalescence then allows for a unique analysis regarding the reclamation of the feminine and the ornamental. There are these traditionalist breakdowns that we find throughout art history that categorizes mediums and genres of art as gendered, and one of those includes the ornamental. Because ornamental arts were viewed as lesser than compared to the high arts of figural, it is deemed feminine. I just want to reiterate that. My goal, and I hope that this conversation continues, you know, amongst all our listeners, you know, we also begin to see these problems continued throughout our own personal space. So this isn't something that only exists within museum or gallery walls. The ornamental relates to all of you listening. Like I said a bit earlier, because the ornamental is associated with objects of the domestic space, you know, which is still very feminized today, I think this is something to continuously be aware of when all of us think about our own objects that we may think of as being very personal or very functional in the home, but nonetheless do send these messages. Yeah. Sorry, I hope that that wasn't too much. I know that was a lot <laughs> of listening to my voice. No, it's not. And
1: what I love about this conversation already is... I have used ornamental theory to a point and you know, I just love to learn, man. I'm just impressed with you and your work. <laughs> um, but it just goes to show I think especially when it comes to theories in are you can take what you want from them and then later mm-hmm. on you're always gonna learn new things as you're experiencing and working with objects. I feel as though in relation to contemporary works, ornamental theory is most commonly used in sculptural works and I feel like that's just where I'm most comfortable with utilizing this theory because Mm -hmm. you have a physical and conceptual manifestation of the ornament would you agree
0: Uh, that's tough um this is an interesting question because I am not myself a maker and this is a little bit of a biased question but (laughs) (laughs) I think that we do see we we see ornament in, in all kinds of things, whether that's 2D or 3D, I think I would say maybe in terms of access, um, I was thinking about those paint it yourself pottery shops that feel very ornamental and decorative for the general public because you're making these kind of trinkets mm-hmm. that may decorate your home, like these kind of um, knickknacks, like these kind of knickknacks that feel very decorative. Yeah. But I also think that contemporary artists and women artists particularly are working very hard not to reclaim, but to showcase traditionally ornamental works like textiles and fiber arts in a very high art manner. Mm -hmm. So yes, I mean, I think think those are, are sculptural installations, but I'm also thinking about textiles and weaving that that are patterns with within itself that are maybe not sculptural I also think that this is a tricky line when we're talking about contemporary ornamental works because there's there may be an, an element to functionality within some of those contemporary I don't know sectors to private spaces so it it's something that's very personal and I'm not sure where the line is between something that's decorative because you're also thinking about architecture you could be thinking about tile Mm -hmm. and tile is flat but is it sculptural does it have texture you know I'm Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about all these different kind of elements that that take shape within something that's ornamental right yeah like your
1: example of textiles and fiber art like even though it is a three-dimensional it uh object at the end of the day that's being created is the pattern itself something that's Mm -hmm. three-dimensional yeah um, because that's just at the end of the day like a visual concept so Mm -hmm. let's talk about the ornamental in relation to the body now there is a lot of debate as we talked about in part one of your thesis that the dinner party has been interpreted as objectification as it is reducing women to the reproductive organs but we have also spoken about this installation more critically and what it means to have female bodies on display when thinking about consumption and that conceptual intent of the artist. What we have gotten into or haven't put into terms yet is the criticism amongst feminist scholars or theorists that Judy Chicago was possibly or unknowingly using biological essentialism. The idea that this is what women's bodies look like and also making assumptions about people's identifiers, again because of the reduction of the body. You argue, however, that while clearly aware of the anatomical symbolism and the implications those may carry, Chicago may actually be reclaiming this imagery, even going as far as to satirize it. So walk us through how this satirization of vulvas is working against essentialism and critiquing and playing into the ornament.
0: (laughs) I love this because I think this argument allows us to take a step back from the dinner party and can be used really as a tool in general to not take art so seriously all the time. Sometimes art is funny and we're allowed to laugh at the ridiculousness that we find in visual culture. I mean, something like some things we see in museums are just ridiculous. <laughs> and I think that that's a huge taboo we face because those of us in the field make it so damn intimidating for others to access and understand that humor sometimes gets left out of the conversation because we're afraid to laugh at ourselves and, and be laughed at, I think so this conversation started happening as i did more research on judy and her vision behind the work and i actually had a conversation with an advisory member of mine who said to me like isn't this funny i was like wait what like this is not a joke like this is feminism
1: you're like (laughs) no it's vaginas on a plate it's hilarious but, but once i
0: stepped back and i just looked at what judy was presenting to us like It's a table of kitschy, brightly colored, embellished vulvas. (laughs) Like, (laughs) what is this? While today we use this intersectional understanding that not everyone who identifies as a woman was born or assigned female at birth, I argue that it's unlikely Chicago wished to promote a highly essentialist feminist message when creating the plates of the piece. I argue actually the contrary. I think while clearly aware of the anatomical symbolism and implications those may carry, Chicago is actually kind of reclaiming this imagery and goes as far, like you said Gianna, to satirize it. In one scene of a documentary called Right Out of History, it's a documentary on the making of the piece, Chicago is shown working on this incredibly intricate and very delicate Emily Dickinson plate. And in the documentary, she says, Oh, Emily, I know you want to get up off this plate. You don't belong on here. So this quote supports the idea that Chicago clearly knew women and their bodies should not be reduced to their anatomy and should clearly not be embodied in decorative objects, although protesters may believe otherwise so rather than examining the the work at face value chicago is bringing a certain degree of humor to the table in an attempt to reclaim what has been continually displayed throughout the history of art what is more funny and more ridiculous than carving 39 vulvas and putting them on a dinner plate for party guests to enjoy and theoretically eat you are eating pussy at the dinner party. <laughs> I would argue that Chicago wanted to call attention to that very common motif of female objectification within ornamental objects. So in her work, Chicago has, I think, created this path for us to evaluate the real absurdity of a non-satirical problem that has continually persisted and continues to persist within the art historical canon. I almost asked that question
1: in part to some of the struggles that I have come upon, not necessarily in my work itself, but my writings and my research about my work, the way that I talk about it, having to be mm-hmm. so critical about my own language, mm-hmm. uh, especially in a feminist, feminist context. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you talk about the displays of women's bodies, but also knowing that i want these works to be open to interpretation and that Mm -hmm. these are also people who are born with these bodies and unlike judy what i was not up against in my work was not directly making portraits which Mm -hmm. i think was also you know we have to consider that correlation too in her work when Mm -hmm. i think talking about that as well
0: yeah and there's definitely um later on in the chapter I I do go on we probably don't have time for it today but I talk about the Georgia O'Keeffe plate and the Mm -hmm. controversy with that right okay so the
1: section on vases (laughs) you threw some theory and some academic shade in this section and I'm just going to need you to walk us through (laughs) the basis of it all as a historic object that has been created and studied and written about in ways that are evocative of the ideal female body. You also mention a 2010 publication called Sensuous Surfaces, the decorative object in early modern China by Jonathan Hay, where he explores the decorative arts in Ming and Qing dynasty China. In it, he argues that our interactions with decorative objects, like other artworks, are transactional. In other words, decorative objects hold a sense of agency. In contemporary terms, and when we discuss the dinner party, we do talk about the agency of reclaiming the female body through our visual display and control of it. But, particularly, the use of sculpture is really important when thinking about the piece that make up the installation. What objects are carrying the agency and how? And in response to Hayes' theory, you don't disagree, but you more Mm -hmm. take it a step further to say that, of course, these are now loaded objects that now have gendered agency because we gendered objects, and in this case, vases. And we don't see the fascination or the correlation with aesthetics of objects in relationship to male bodies.
0: <laughs> yes, that's right, Gianna. Um <laughs> <laughs> I mean Hayes' overall argument is super cool. I think this idea that objects have agency is wildly fascinating. However, as I work through it in the chapter, I write that the connection between female bodies and the ornamental is by no means a newly conceived notion, right? So Mm -hmm. it certainly did not begin with the dinner party, this connection. And I offer an example by which the female body has been used both historically and in a contemporary manner to illustrate how the comparison of object-body relations problematically guides an unfeminist canonical discussion of art objects. So in 1542, the Italian poet Agnolo Firenzuola completed his book on the beauty of women. He draws these images of vases, which you can view on our Instagram. I highly recommend you look at these vases so you can understand the description I'm about to read. The vase on the far right, with its long neck rising delicately from its shoulders, is like a woman with a long slender neck and wide graceful shoulders. The next vase has sides that swell out around the sturdy neck, making it appear more slender, and this resembles the ideal fleshy hipped woman, who needs no belt to set off her slender midriff. In contrast to the first, The third vase is like a skinny, angular woman, whereas the fourth, unlike the second, recalls those over-endowed women who are simply blocked out by the mallet without being finished by the chisel and the rasp. I don't know why I'm laughing
1: at, like, the 15th century use of the word midriff.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, although written in 1542, so 16th century, (laughs) Firenzuola his objectification of female bodies via the ornamental and his universalizing proposal that female bodies are represented by four kinds of vases that's it you just get four kinds and you're put in one is (laughs) unfortunately not something that has escaped academic understandings of the decorative nor has it escaped the way in which artists create works that represent female bodies so moving back to Hay and your quote, Gianna, his claim, again, is, is very compelling and is presented very convincingly. However, I do say that I take issue with this comparison from 2010 between decorative objects and female bodies in particular. Initially, his comparison between objects and bodies is very interesting because he presents this analysis on the physical connection between the aesthetics and of decorative objects and those objects imitation of the human body so we think about the leg of a chair the you know the foot of the couch however his analysis as it continues it is only the female body that is invoked in such an ornamental and a very very sensual manner so there is also never any mention of the relationship between objects and male bodies which I think is very interesting. Hayes' examination of these objects is very similar to another analysis by Firenzuola on an ancient vase called the Mona Lampiata. Here, Firenzuola describes this ancient vase as if it has agency, claiming that she is not a vase, but certainly an entire treasure chest of all the virtues that adorn the spirit of a gentlewoman, <laughs> the vase is treated as a woman and that it or she is given gendered pronouns as well as this gentle womanly spirit. Although Firnzwella and Hay both make very compelling visual analysis that persuasively call attention to the visual likeness of domestic objects to bodily forms, these analyses, they extend into dated parallels between this inherent connection and to specifically female bodies and vases you know along with other domestic objects so
1: okay everyone so we are going to take a little break and when we come back we are going to talk with bianca more about ornamental theory and a different work of art one by john singer Sargent called the daughters of edward darley Boit," that bianca recently viewed at the mfa boston Well, if you're sitting here staring at your vases or household objects and wondering what literally every object means and does it have a fucked up (laughs) connotation, welcome back to Art Pop Talk, the place that makes questioning everything and turns into an existential crisis. (laughs) Museum
0: juice. (laughs) We had a uh, APT staff meeting last night, and and we are we're gonna bottle up some museum juice, which is just the feeling of existential dread you get when you walk into an art museum. And I think we should really uh, capitalize on. Yeah, I think we need juice. to like start patenting that, make it happen. Totally. Let's just add really that loves.
1: to PA's list. She'll love that,
0: <laughs> Miss Kaminsky. Please start bottling museum juice. Hmm. Okay. So,
1: where'd you begin? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um. <laughs> well, Bianca, I am dying to hear more about your trip to MFA Boston, but most importantly, we are going to talk about a really significant painting at this museum, which is John Singer Sargent's The Daughters of Edward Darley Boit and its use of the ornamental, um, as it features a family of young women with tall porcelain vases as both a backdrop and a focal point in the image. Yes. (laughs) So. That's it. (laughs) Good night, everyone. Yes. (laughs) You heard it here first. That's all you need to know about Edward Darley Boat. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh my god. Riveting commentary.
0: <laughs> In 1882, American painter John Singer Sargent was commissioned by his friends Edward Darley Boat and Mary Louisa Cushing Boat to paint a portrait of their four daughters. Although the parents were both Americans born into great wealth, they preferred living in Europe to the United States. So this painting not only features portraits of their four young girls, but also the lavish interior of their Parisian home. This work has been the subject of numerous art historical studies, given its unique composition and Sargent's unconventional means of representing the children. Unlike a classic portrait that might offer the viewer some deeper understanding of the sitter or sitters, the daughters of Edward Bois rather appear to be part of the interior space itself, as their bodies are visually echoed in the shape, size, and placement of the two large Japanese faces or urns that accompany the girls in the foyer of their home. So, in using the visual descriptor from the
1: MFA Boston... Sargent placed the Bois girls in an intermediate space, the entrance hall neither entirely public nor entirely private, that is brightly lit in the foreground but recedes into a vaguely defined drawing room, half lit with mirrors and reflections. The two tall Japanese vases made in arata, a broad term for Japanese porcelain and also a town in Japan, in the late 19th century, specifically for export to the West, and were prized family possessions of the Blatt family. Their unusual size in relation to the girls makes the interior seem strange and magical. The sisters are dressed almost alike in the sort of casual clothes they would have worn in the schoolroom or for play. Their white pinafores gave Sargent an opportunity to demonstrate his mastery at painting white in different conditions of light. Only the youngest girl, Julia, engages the viewer, while the older girls recede progressively into the shadows, becoming increasingly indistinct. So, this painting is studied and is a well known work of Sargent because it is differing from traditional portraiture, and it also has been compared in the sense that the young girls are painted in a very Degas like manner. But I thought the description or information, about the work on the MFA's website was interesting, especially considering the installment of the painting, which is flanked by the two vases in the painting. Because the only mention to this uncomfortable nature of the way that the young girls are painted and in comparison to object was, quote, while some have interpreted sergeants strategy as a poignant comment on the fickle nature of childhood and adolescence writer henry james a friend of both the watts and Sargent, described the picture as a happy play world of a family of charming children <laughs> end quote so like nothing
0: about them looks happy
1: <laughs> yeah honestly so al- although the mysticism in the painting i think is apparent we know that these objects are more loaded and what was once a play world dream in the eyes of these children, it is this fantasy and this fascination we have with these objects that will lead to forms of oppression when they become adolescents. And I think this painting plays with those fine lines of childhood and innocence and objectification. Mm -hmm. So Bianca, I'm curious about your experience viewing the piece for the first time and why this was inserted into your chapter on ornament
0: i actually forgot i completely forgot that this piece was in mfa boston and i was walking up the stairs honestly i was just so thrilled to be back at any at a museum i didn't even care i guess what was in the space or what was on view you know and i'm walking up the stairs and all of a sudden you know, I saw, I saw the vases, and I saw the piece, and it's so large. I guess I was also impressed by the, the scale of the piece, and I I honestly was just completely overwhelmed. You know, it's, it's one of those moments that you study something for so long, and then to be surprised that I was able to see it was just something I, I don't know, I really enjoyed, and I think if you're, um, a person who likes art or has your favorite work of art that moment when you see it in person you really do feel this personal connection and and because I've studied it so much you know I really I don't know I had this like almost an emotional connection to the girls and this quote Gianna that you had about the happy play world it almost makes me sad because mm-hmm. Nothing about that painting seems very joyous to me, and I don't know what it was like to be a rich white girl (laughs) growing up in her Parisian home in 1880, (laughs) but from the look of this painting, they don't look like happy children. Of course, I think, you know, if you're familiar with the painting, you see the, the, the smallest girl in the foreground who has the doll between her legs, which we have come to think about as this marker of childbirth and she's not going to be a child for very long because she's going to grow up and she's just going to be used to make children. And there's, there's nothing in this space also to symbolize that it's, it's like their playroom. There are no toys. It's, it's very dark. So that's, that's a really interesting description that you read of the piece, Gianna. But yeah, I was, I was like so moved. I just, I, I didn't want to leave. I just wanted to, to keep looking at it. Bill Brown is a leading scholar on the subject of object relations, and in a 2003 book, he argued that this painting invokes one's, quote, inability to distinguish between the animate and the inanimate. According to Brown, Sargent has managed to paint a portrait of the vases and a still life of the girls. Art historian saint Sandlakis, Queen has also pointed out the corporeal connections between the girls and the vases, which she believes was an intentional choice made by Sargent. She claims that this body object parallel or the fusion of the girls with the vases illustrates this short story called bric a brac in which furniture legs become indistinguishable from the limbs of the family who owns them. So again, that's kind of going back to that argument by maybe Firenzuola and Hay who compare furniture to bodies. As the daughters and their presumably female bodies have been paralleled and objectified by a male artist, John Singer Sargent, the matter of agency and object once again comes into question. If the daughters are indeed being compared to those ornamental vases, then their own bodies appear just as ornamental. Although the artistic intentions of Sargent could, of course, be debated, we may never attain hard evidence that this was, in fact, his perspective on the girls, the work, nevertheless, falls into a long line of art historical scholarship that exhibits women's bodies as ornamental. Both the figures and the ceramic wares are decorative objects that adorn the foyer of the Boats' home. And almost a century later, it could be argued that Judy Chicago has done something quite similar with her creation of the Dinner Party. So this is why I brought it into my thesis. At a basic level, a group of 39 women are objectified without their consent and placed on view in a very domestic-like setting. Although Chicago is a self-identified woman artist and is drawing up shared inequalities that many women have undoubtedly faced throughout Western history, is it fair for her to use these women and turn their historical achievements into pieces of decoration, simply based on the perceived shared experiences of being a woman? Or even while Chicago may have attempted to reclaim her own female agency via the ornamental she has potentially taken away the agency of the women she represents in the dinner party this painting is so it's so interesting it's beautiful it's, it's, it was it's, stunning too it is and,
1: and that's why i think it's hard for me because i am an admirer of john singer sergeant's work oh, i love sergeant i know I love sergeant and uh, his portraits, I mean, I think also this is so interesting too, and just thinking of Sargent's uh, traditional portrait uh, paintings, but also how he breaks away from traditional portraiture with little, um, I don't know, subtle subtle changes, but this obviously is, is more than a, a subtle change. It's very direct. It's hard for me to think that I'm always going to have the viewpoint of giving the artist the benefit of the doubt, we need to think that every single decision was intentional and what that means. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just very interesting that he would especially make this comparison to young girls of a family that he is very close to. Mm -hmm. I find that extremely interesting.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I yeah, I don't know. But there's a certain, there's a certain like point for the art historian in me who who possibly thinks that Sargent is just echoing that Mm -hmm. that idea of object body relations and that connection to the female body and and maybe for him that seemed inherent that seemed very natural to equate and maybe it wasn't even seen as something negative like the vases are very beautiful I'm, i'm assuming that the girls like they look like very beautiful young girls it, was it a bad thing to be seen as something that's beautiful and decorative right. and pretty well, you know and it was
1: also possibly assumed too that going back to that comparison with Degas got as well who can be noted as one of his competitors as well so keeping up with that um that trend at the time mm. what art is being consumed what art is being displayed and um acknowledged y- yeah i i don't know it, it's hard because it's also OK to like this painting mm-hmm. um, for all of its complexities,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which yeah. I think is how I enjoy it.
0: Yeah, for sure. I love Sargent. And I, I do have an episode planned for us in the works on John Singer Sargent's Portrait of Madame X, which oh, I... I'm just... Love, oh, I can't wait. Love. Yeah, Who, I, by the way, looks
1: like um, Irene looks like dr irene she
0: looks exactly like her exactly like queen her. Ugh. oh my god uh queen 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 so thank you all for listening to this episode today i know it was a lot of my voice <laughs> yelling art historical garbage at you but oh, i appreciate it and you know i of course i always want to hear thoughts i want to continue the conversation we also wanted to let you know that there will be no episode next week because of Thanksgiving. We hope that you are all able to have a safe, 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 and happy Thanksgiving, and we will return on December 1st with a very special guest interview. Eek. Eek. <laughs> so
1: next week, be sure to catch up on your APT, and while we're on break and you're telling all your friends and family about this amazing podcast that you love and that you listen to and that you're so thankful for. (laughs) Why Why not give us a rating and leave a review wherever you listen? We would appreciate it so, so much because Bianca and I are so thankful for all of you.
0: Oh, I'm so thankful for apt and you gianna and pa audrey kaminsky and our graphic designer sid hammond i'm so thankful for the apt crew and all of the amazing amazing art pop tarts so i wanted to let you guys know that we are also now on amazon music tell all your friends who use amazon and have amazon prime that they can listen there as well With that, we will talk to you all
1: after the holiday break. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Bye.